two feuding families, twelve accusations of witchcraft, ten death sentences. The facts of the Pendle Witch Trials, Britain's most infamous confrontation with the world of black magic, are well documented. But much of the context is lost to history, a tangled web of blame, counter-accusations, simmering rivalries, and private ambition led to tragedy. And in a strange turn of events, the trials would set the stage for an even more deadly witch hunt exactly 80 years later, halfway around the world. From our dark and sinister past, to the weird and wonderful every day, throughout human history we have shared stories. In this series we will blow the dust off some of the most intriguing and lesser known tales. Mysterious disappearances, strange phenomena, local legends and events too incredible to be pure fiction. Welcome to Astonishing. In the year 1612, an accusation of witchcraft was made against young Alison Devis of Pendle in Lancashire, England. Devis, it was claimed, had struck down the peddler John Law after a disagreement. When Devis was summoned before the local magistrate Roger Nowell, she confessed to being a witch and implicated her own family and many other locals. Nowell smelled blood in the water, and within a few months, a dozen people were standing in the dock. The trial was anything but ordinary. The proceedings were marked by outbursts and threats, and the court heard testimony from a young child in their eagerness to convict the so-called witches. Despite flimsy evidence, the twelve defendants were put to death. To understand how this happened, we have to go back to the reign of Henry VIII, and to the factors which made witchcraft, and those who practiced it, the chief public enemies of the time. Lancashire, a windswept, remote area of northeastern England, bordering the mountain range known as the Pennines. 500 years ago, it was regarded as a somewhat lawless county, a place which the law held only a loose grip. Geographically, it's about as far from the Houses of Parliament and the Monarch's throne as it's possible to go in England. And for the residents of the villages lying in the shadow of Pendle Hill, that distance was palpable. The dissolution of the monasteries under Henry VIII meant that the local abbey at Wally was closed in 1537, with a devastating effect on the local area, who lost out on jobs and a stabilizing religious influence as a result. Home to loyal and observant Catholics, the people of Pendle were not quick to take up the teachings of the new, state-endorsed Church of England, but paid lip service to its doctrines nonetheless. Witching was actually a reasonable, if not lucrative, way to get by in a hard-scrabble environment where other opportunities were scarce for women and men. Poverty and disease were the norm, and the relative prosperity of London was not equitably shared in the north of England. 
The average life expectancy at the time was just 40 years old, and infant mortality was rife. Life was short, but lives of hard labour and scraping to survive felt very long. As a consequence, dealers in herbs, potions, and uncanny medicines were commonplace, though they were careful to go unnoticed by the local law. Suspicion of such unconventional methods was widespread, but the appellation witch was seldom used. Instead, most towns and villages had at least one cunning woman. As writer Simon Armitage puts it, there was a crucial distinction. A cunning woman was a healer, while a witch was a stealer. King James, who inherited the English throne in 1603 upon the death of Elizabeth I, was known to be paranoid about threats to his crown, particularly that of a Catholic rebellion in England. There was a great deal of animosity and mutual suspicion between both Protestants and Catholics, and the monarch who held the throne dictated the religion of the land. Queen Mary I, who reigned prior to Elizabeth, had attempted to reverse the punitive measures which Henry VIII imposed when his Church of England broke away from the Vatican, to the extent of having 280 Protestant dissenters burned at the stake. Tension was high when Catholic plotters tried, and failed, to overthrow Elizabeth, and again when Guy Fawkes' failed gunpowder plot took place in 1605. In 1611, James commissioned a new version of the Bible to reflect the ecclesiology and structure of the still young Church of England. He also believed unreservedly in the existence and the power of witches. Laws prohibiting witchcraft in England already existed. Queen Elizabeth had passed the Act Against Conjurations, Enchantments and Witchcraft, which empowered courts to sentence witches to death if they had used magic to kill or harm. But James's paranoia was acute. He believed that witches were intent on overthrowing him, and after attending the North Berwick Witch Trials in 1590, he became convinced that witches had sent a storm to sink the ship on which he returned from Denmark. James even wrote a dissertation, Demonology, on the danger of magic. It dealt with ways to spot a witch and how to guard against black magic, and later inspired William Shakespeare to write Macbeth. Under the King's orders, every Justice of the Peace in Lancashire was instructed to compile a list of religious nonconformists in the county, a kind of register of non-theists designed to incite suspicion about these renegades. At this time, the King was also head of the judiciary. The local judges, whether sceptical or convinced of the power of witchcraft, wanted to curry his favour setting the stage for a trial by fire. What follows is a detailed account of the events of the Pendle Witch Trials, after which we will elaborate on the circumstances which led to the fateful trials and on the chilling aftermath. The trouble began on the 21st of March, 1612. On Colne Road in Pendle, a young lady, Alison Devis, approached John Law on his way to Trawden Forest. Devis asked Law, a peddler from Halifax, for some pins. Law, perhaps being aware that pins were used in witchcraft, 
or simply being reluctant to unpack his wares for such a small sale, refused. Moments later, Law was on the ground. He was paralysed on one side of his body and unable to speak. He dragged himself to a nearby inn to seek aid in, as he put it, great pain, not able to stir either hand or foot. Law immediately pointed the finger of blame at Allison. While recuperating at the inn, Law claimed that Allison entered his room to torture him and sent a great black dog to watch him. He also claimed that Allison would sometimes accompany the dog, staring silently at Law from across the room. A few days later, Law's son accompanied Allison to his father's house. Allison confessed immediately and sought forgiveness, which Law gave on the promise that Allison would lift the curse. When Law's condition failed to improve on the 30th of March, his son visited Pendle's Justice of the Peace, Roger Noel, an ambitious local magistrate who resided on the edge of Pendle Forest. Noel was known as a climber, someone desperate to make his name and prove his loyalty to God and King. Law's son gave him the facts, and Alison was summoned to see Noel, accompanied by her mother Elizabeth and teenage brother James. Alison came right out with it. She said she had sold her soul to the devil. Alison also confessed again to laming Law, having done so after Law had branded her a thief. James chimed in, saying that Alison had also bewitched a local girl. When Noel turned his fire on Elizabeth, Alison's mother, she admitted that her own mother, Elizabeth Southerns, otherwise known as Mother Demdike, had a mark on her body. It was well known that a mark of this nature could only have been left by the devil himself drinking a person's blood. For 50 years, Demdike's reputation locally had been that of a cunning woman, if not a witch. Alison went into detail, claiming that Elizabeth was a powerful witch, with the power to perform rituals and bring about harm. She could also cure her desperate neighbours' ailments, heal their cattle, and turn milk into butter. Alison may have tried to make clear to Noel the extent of her family's power, in order to intimidate him and drop the case. The gambit, however, backfired. Alison, hoping to regain control of the narrative, then accused her neighbour, Anne Whittle, also known as Mother Chattox, of witchcraft, and of the killing of Alison's father, John Devis, who had died ten years prior. Alison claimed that her father was murdered because he had ceased giving Chattox eight pounds of oatmeal annually, without which Chattox had threatened to harm John and his family. John supposedly blamed Anne Whittle on his deathbed. Noel dismissed the family and began to write up his account. Three days later, representatives from the two families complied with the summons to see Noel. Demdike appeared, as did Mother Chattox and her daughter Anne Redfern. By this point, both the matriarchs were extremely aged. Living into one's 80s was not common at this point in history, but both women had managed it, though both were blind and required assistance. Noel did not need to level accusations at the women, they provided them independently. <laughs> 
Both women claim to have sold their souls to the devil, Chattox having been promised that she would not lack anything and would get any revenge she desired. Chattox's daughter, Anne, did not speak, but was condemned by the testimony of others. Mother Demdike accused her of making clay figures for witchcraft, known as poppets, not unlike the figures used in many cultures across the world that we may know as voodoo dolls. Another woman, Margaret Crook, later that day accused Anne of cursing and killing her brother after a row. Noel had heard enough. Demdike, Chattox, Anne Redfern, and Alison Devis were all charged with Maleficium, black magic, and were to be tried at Lancaster Jail at the earliest opportunity. Some days later, the Demdikes, on Good Friday of April 1612, organised a get-together at their home at Malkin Tower, a lofty name which belied its humble nature. Several villagers sympathetic to the family and their situation attended. The meeting was catered for with a sheep which James Devis had stolen from a neighbour. This meeting would have passed without incident, but when Noel was informed, he convened an inquiry to find out its purpose. The purpose remains unclear, but we know the gathering was attended by friends and well-wishers. It being a holy day, any good Christian would have been attending church. On the 27th of April, Noel and Nichols Bannister, another magistrate, decided to accuse eight more individuals of witchcraft from those who attended the Malkin Tower meeting, a grand convocation, as the court record put it. Elizabeth Devis, James Devis, Alice Nutter, Catherine Hewitt, John Bullcock, Jane Bullcock, Alice Gray, and Janet Preston were all named. Noel, it seemed, had uncovered a whole nest of witches hiding in plain sight, and had an opportunity to pin on them the blame for local deaths from years prior. The stage was set. Janet Preston, being a resident of York across the county border, was tried at the York Assizes. Assizes were periodically convened courts, which would assemble as required and draw juries from the local townspeople. The Assizes might seem like a relic of the past, but they actually continued well into living memory, only being abolished in 1972. At the time of the trials, sets of judges toured across six circuits. Lancashire was part of the Northern Circuit. Janet had already been charged with the killing of a child by witchcraft in 1611, but was found not guilty at the time. Now, she was charged with the murder of Thomas Lister of Westby Hall, a local landowner. Again, she pleaded not guilty. Presiding over Janet's trial were Sir James Oltham and Sir Edward Bromley. The court heard that Janet had attended the gathering at Malkin Tower to seek help with Lister's murder. Furthermore, when Janet was taken to see Lister's body, it was said to have bled freshly after she touched it. This grisly detail was enough for the jury, who found her guilty. Janet Preston was hanged until dead on the 29th of July at nearby Knavesmire. The death of Preston cast a long shadow over the subsequent trials at the Lancaster Assizes, which were held at Lancaster Castle. Judges Ultham and Bromley, who had sentenced her to death, were again appointed to judge the remaining 11 defendants. Roger Noel was prosecuting. 
One of the accused escaped trial. Mother Demdike, mother to Elizabeth Devis and grandmother to Elizabeth, James and Janet Devis, died of natural causes before she could be called up. There's no doubt that the circumstances of her imprisonment hastened her death, in a confined space with bad ventilation and extremely poor hygiene, with many others awaiting trial. The clerk to the Lancaster Assizes, Thomas Potts, was ordered to record every detail of the trial. Potts' manuscript of the proceedings, The Wonderful Discovery of Witches in the County of Lancaster, was published as a book in August of the following year. That's wonderful in the contemporary sense of the word, of course. Day one of the trial took place on the 18th of August, 1612, and was marked by incendiary accusations. First to the dock was Anne Whittle, Mother Chattox, who was accused of killing a local man, Robert Nutter, with magic. Anne had already confessed to the killing to prosecutor Roger Noel. The motive for the killing came when Nutter tried to, in the parlance of the time, have his pleasure with Anne's married daughter, Anne Redfern. When Redfern refused, Nutter threatened to throw her family off their land, once he inherited it from his grandfather. Anne Whittle did carry out the killing, but only after Nutter's grandmother paid her to do it. Even by the standards of the time, Robert Nutter's unpleasantness was widely known. However, when Anne took the stand, she pleaded not guilty. James Robinson, who had lived with the Chattox family two decades prior, testified that Chattox was known locally as a witch, and that she was indeed guilty of killing Robert Nutter. Chattox tearfully withdrew her plea of innocence and begged for mercy from God and the judges, both for herself and for her daughter Anne Redfern. Elizabeth was charged with the murders of James Robinson and John Robinson. She was also, in conjunction with Alice Nutter, charged with the murder of one Henry Mitten. Potts's records pull no punches referring to Elizabeth as the odious witch, and noting that her left eye was lower than her right, drawing the conclusion that her appearance was a sure sign of her moral character. One Janet Devis entered the courtroom and was asked to give evidence. Two things were unusual about Janet, known locally as a beggar. The first and most obvious was that she was Elizabeth's own daughter, called on to testify against her own family and community. Second, she was nine years old. Selecting a child so young as a witness was highly unusual, but there was precedent. As dictated in his demonology, King James had suspended many of the conventions of a typical trial when witchcraft was involved. As the king had written, children, women, and liars can be witnesses over high treason against God. Before Janet could testify, Elizabeth vehemently maintained her innocence and screamed and swore at her daughter. Janet calmly asked for her mother to be removed from the room, then continued. She stated that she'd known her mother was a witch for the past three or four years. Her proof? Janet said she'd seen her mother conversing with a familiar, a large brown dog named Ball and that she'd seen Elizabeth planning murders with the creature. Janet then implicated her brother James and her sister Alison. Once Janet was finished, 
James entered and also gave evidence against his mother. He accused his mother of making a clay puppet of another murdered local, John Robinson. That was sufficient, and Elizabeth Davis was found guilty. James was then accused of the murders of Anne Townley and John Duckworth. Janet had already dropped James in it. She said she'd seen James conjuring a black dog to help him to kill Townley. Like Mother Chattox, he had earlier confessed to Noel, and his confession was read to the court. James withdrew his confession and pleaded not guilty, but the jury were unconvinced. At the end of day one, three of the witches of Pendle had been pronounced guilty. Janet, whether by coercion or her own free will, would give evidence condemning her mother, Elizabeth Davis, sister Alison, and brother James. Anne Redfern, the daughter of Mother Chattox, had appeared the first day charged with the murder of Robert Nutter, but was found not guilty. The second day, she faced her trial for the murder of Nutter's father, Christopher. Again, she pleaded not guilty. The court heard the notes from Mother Demdike's meeting with Noel, in which she accused Anne of making clay puppets of both Nutter and his son. Witnesses claimed that Anne was a more dangerous witch than her mother. Notably, Anne did not make any counter-accusations against her accusers. It didn't help, and she was still found guilty. Next up was the Bullcock family, Mother Jane and son John. They were accused and found guilty of the murder by witchcraft of Janet Dean. They denied attending the meeting at Malkin Tower prior to the trial, but Janet Devis had claimed they were both present. The details added by Janet must have sold it. She said that John had turned the spit on which the stolen sheep had roasted. They were both found guilty. Alice Nutter, no relation to Robert and Christopher, followed. She made no statement before taking the stand, except to plead not guilty. Her charge? The murder of Henry Mitten by witchcraft, in which Mother Demdike and Elizabeth Davis were also implicated. Roger Noel alleged that Nutter had caused the death of Mitten after he refused to give a penny to Mother Demdike. Why would Nutter kill Mitten after he had spurned Demdike? The bonds of witchy sisterhood, of course. Alice had been at the Malkin Tower meeting as confirmed by James and Janet Devis. Alice was not like the other accused standing with her at the Assizes. For one, she was wealthy. She was the widow of a landowning farmer. Unlike Mother Demdike, she had no need to beg for pennies. But more importantly, she was a Catholic. When stopped in at the Malkin Tower meeting, she may have been on her way to a secret Catholic service and refused to reveal her true purpose on that day for fear of endangering her community. She knew all too well the costs of breaking her silence. The two men in her family had been executed for taking the priesthood. Alice was the seventh witch to be found guilty. Three more women passed through the court on the second day. Two attendees of the Malkin Tower meeting, Catherine Hewitt and Alice Gray, were charged with the murder of Anne Folds, a child. According to the testimony of James Devis, Hewitt and Gray had confessed to the murder while at the meeting. Janet Devis was able to identify Catherine Hewitt in a lineup, but apparently not Alice Gray. Alice was found not guilty, 
Catherine was sentenced to hang. Finally, Alison Devis was called up. It was Alison who had supposedly cursed John Law when he refused to sell her pins, and sure enough, John Law was there to repeat his accusations. Alison did not deny the charges. In fact, she broke down and begged for forgiveness. The trial was swift and saw little mercy given. Of the ten accused, only Alice Gray escaped punishment. The remaining nine were found guilty. The following day, in the cold light of morning, the condemned men and women were led through the southern gate of the city of Lancaster and onto the moors nearby. Executions at the time, and for many years after, were a public spectacle. Hundreds and often thousands would travel to see the show, and local traders could expect a week of business in one day. On the 19th of August, the Pendle witches ascended Gallows Hill for the last time, and were hanged one by one. There would be no funeral service, and their graves were not marked. Over the course of just a few days in 1612, Janet Devis's words to the people of Pendle were so compelling that ten people were put to death, including her entire family. The events of the Pendle Witch Trials could have remained a macabre footnote in the history of England, but their ramifications went far beyond Pendle, and indeed the country as a whole. Six years later, Michael Dalton published the textbook The Country Justice, a manual for the practice of law by justices of the peace like Roger Knoll. It was one of the first, if not the first, legal handbooks to arrange its topics alphabetically for reference and advised readers on how to administer justice in cases of murder, theft, and witchcraft. The record of the trials in Thomas Potts' book, including the testimony of Jennet, was included. The book was extremely popular and widely read, and as it happened, the first colonies in America used the book as a foundation of their fledgling court system. King James's decree that children could be used as witnesses in cases of witchcraft written in 1599 and established as precedent in Pendle in 1612, was enshrined at the heart of American democracy. And so it was that in 1692, 80 years after Janet Devis first accused her family of witchcraft, children were once again called upon as chief witnesses in the Salem Witch Trials. The testimony of these children, not much older than Janet, led to the conviction of 19 townspeople, all of whom were hanged as a result. In time, Janet, who played a key role in the sentencing of the Pendle Witches, fell afoul of the same atmosphere of paranoia which she had exploited in her youth. Twenty years after the trials, when Janet was 29, she was accused of witchcraft, along with 16 others, by Edmund Robinson, himself just a boy. She was found guilty, but, on appeal, her case was passed on to the Privy Council, who needed more than hearsay and rumour. In the intervening years, it seems a cautionary scepticism had grown. Robinson admitted to concocting his stories, and Janet walked free. She disappears from the history books hereafter. 
and we don't know of her final fate. Between the early 15th and early 18th centuries, 500 women were executed for witchcraft. That sounds like a lot given that we know these women were not guilty of anything, but the number of victims of the trials at Pendle, 10, makes up 2% of the 300-year total. To understand why these few months in Pendle were so deadly, we have to understand the accelerating factors which raised the stakes. It's alleged that the closure of the nearby Wally Abbey in 1537 led to a moral and spiritual vacuum which contributed to the survival of Catholicism in Pendle and the proliferation of witchcraft. Under the reign of King James and a reformed church, both became forbidden ideologies, and where they were practiced in tandem as they were in Pendle, suspicion became certainty in the eyes of the state. The kind of folk magic practiced in Pendle combined Roman Catholic prayers with a unique, colloquial type of incantation. It specifically rejected the new traditions of the Church of England. Bad blood was probably the chief factor which led to Alison Devis blaming Mother Jattox, the first accusation of many in the Pendle witch trials. The feud may have been ignited in 1601. In that year, one of the Chattox family broke into the Devis's house at Malkin Tower and stole the goods. The goods were worth just one pound in modern terms, a petty sum, but in hard times it meant the difference between survival and devastation. For all of the failings of the justice system during the witch trials, some responsibility lay in the refusal to set aside quibbles. Noel, a low-ranking figure in local government, was very ambitious. As Professor Malcolm Gaskell of the University of East Anglia notes, Noel was extremely zealous. He sees his route to success in his career is to identify non-conformists that could be Catholics or witches and bring them to justice. Another magistrate might have turned a blind eye to the reports of witchcraft, correctly chalking it up to petty grievances between families being blown out of proportion in the interests of maintaining the status quo. But the combination of Noel's thirst for power and a judicial system that was all too keen to listen led to disaster. We'd be remiss if we didn't take a second to discuss the credibility of the accusations of witchcraft on their own terms. When John Law fell to the ground on Colne Road in Pendle, he claimed he had been cursed by Alison Devis. We know now, of course, that he was probably the victim of a stroke, his symptoms matching up precisely. Many of the manifestations of witchcraft which Janet spoke of, again, look suspiciously mundane with the benefit of distance. Alison, James and Elizabeth Devis were all accused of summoning familiars in the form of dogs to carry out their dark bidding. It's worth pointing out that regular, everyday dogs were just as common in England 400 years ago as they are now. It's fascinating that while 11 of the witches were hanged, one was found not guilty. It might suggest that the jurors on the trials were genuinely interested in determining guilt and innocence and separating truth from fiction, or that something else kept Alice Grey from the gallows. More cynically, one might suggest that the Lancaster Assizes wanted to maintain a veneer of fairness to mask their fanaticism. Likewise, 
Scholars and observers have been astounded by the fact that so many of the accused at the Pendle Witch Trials confessed to their charges, or otherwise sincerely believed they were guilty. We can't simply chalk it up to naivety on their part, expecting leniency from their captors in exchange for a simple mea culpa. It reinforces the conclusion that for the everyday inhabitants of a harsh, uncaring world at this time in history, witchcraft seemed to offer a genuine sliver of hope. In the face of starvation, sickness, and marginalization, magic was something to cling onto, despite knowing the likely consequences. As it turned out, the national hysteria around witchcraft soon dissipated. Witch hunts became sporadic in the latter half of the 1600s, and the last execution for witchcraft in England took place in 1716, in Scotland, 1727. The Witchcraft Act of 1735 made it a crime for anyone to claim that another person had magical powers or practiced witchcraft. Even King James, earlier viewed as the exemplary expert and zealous persecutor of witches, soon questioned his own belief in demonology. In a letter to his son Henry, he wrote, Most miracles nowadays prove but illusions, and ye may see by this how wary judges should be in trusting accusations. Enlightenment had arrived too late for the witches of Pendle. The families of those found guilty at the trials continued to seek justice for their ancestors for decades afterwards. Despite the mistrust and paranoia against witches over the years, the trials left a stain on the family name. However, history hasn't forgotten, and in 1998 a petition was presented to the UK's Home Secretary seeking a pardon for those convicted. The pardon was denied, and the convictions still stand. Hysteria about the other in society has perpetuated to this day. We might scoff at the credulity of our predecessors, believing in curses and bargains with the devil. But in our modern world, many claim that there exists a hidden minority which threatens the status quo of the majority. The so-called witches of yesteryear bore the weight of the country's anxieties, poverty, political instability, a crisis of faith, for the deficiency of being different, marginalised, and mainly women. Being blamed for the illness, disease and crop failures of their peers was unique to their time, of course. The warnings of the past go unheeded if we ignore their lessons in the present. Modern witch hunts are commonplace. Without understanding, empathy and tolerance, it's in our nature to demonise others. Most of those who ended their lives on Gallows Hill were guilty of nothing but trying to make sense of a world which was desperately unfair to them. On visiting Pendle in the modern day, one can participate in tours of the village, seeing the sites where these witches lived, struggled and died. It feels like something from the realm of fantasy, a world entirely removed from our own. But we risk tragedy if we think that the persecution of a group, based on the flimsiest of accusations, couldn't happen again. I hope you enjoyed listening to this week's story. 
Head to astonishingpodcast.com to find information about the podcast, as well as links to our Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook pages with teasers on upcoming episodes. If you'd like to support us, you can also donate directly at supporter.acast.com forward slash astonishing. Your support allows us to invest in better equipment for improving the recording and sound quality of our podcast and ensures we can continue to produce it. In our next episode, we'll take a trip back to London in the late 1970s to reveal the truth behind the most shocking and most documented haunting in British history, detailing how a family of five were terrorised by an invisible entity, and what happens when logic just can't seem to make sense of some of the more incredible aspects of the story. You've been listening to Astonishing.